Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview on the American Constitution and the history of the American Constitution with one of the world's leading experts on that topic, Noah Feldman. Noah is a Harvard Law professor, public intellectual, ethical philosopher, advisor, religious scholar, historian, and author. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard Law School and Chairman of the Society of Fellows at Harvard University. He's the author of 10 books, host of the podcast Deep Background, and a public affairs columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and a former contributing writer from the new, for the New York Times. This interview concerns his latest book, The Broken Constitution. Um, I think the interview pretty much speaks for itself, so I won't do an extended in- introduction, other than just to say, as always, if you do appreciate this show, please consider sponsoring it on Patreon. I don't do any commercial advertisements at all, and so all costs are covered by listeners. And for everyone who does support, I am very, very grateful for that. So, apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor Noah Feldman. I am joined today by Professor Noah Feldman. Professor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be with you. So just before we get started, I'll have provided like a quick introduction to you. But what's like, you know, to put it somewhat tritely, if someone asks you what you do at a party, what's your like one to two sentence go to for that? It all depends on what kind of party. Uh, (laughs) When I first started teaching constitutional law, uh, in New York, now almost 20 years ago, I discovered that in New York City, if people ask you what you do and you say anything involving teaching, scholarship, academics, immediately there's complete boredom and they turn away and talk to somebody else. So then I started saying that I'm a writer because I do write things about uh, the history of the U.S. Constitution and about constitutional development uh, in other parts of the world, including the Middle East. But I think of myself as essentially someone who's interested in constitutions, how they develop, what makes them constitutions, what makes them good constitutions, and how they're broken and remade. And I try to combine that with taking ideas from constitutional design and applying it in other areas of life that don't necessarily involve governments, but sometimes involve uh, other kinds of entities that have to regulate themselves in ways that are inspired by constitutions. And your latest book is uses some of the words you just used, broken and constitution, right? It, it does. It's called The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. Here's a philosophic question, um, just before we get to the book. Do you have, like, a go-to definition of a constitution, or even just perhaps a framework for thinking about what a constitution is? My working uh, definition is derived of one offered in the middle of the 18th century um, by uh, Viscount Bolingbroke. And Mm -hmm. he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that a constitution is made up of the beliefs, values, laws, norms that together are understood to govern the way political power is deployed in a given place and time. Again, that's a rather a loose paraphrase, but it's meant to be a definition that's largely descriptive Mm -hmm. and that incorporates not only written documents that are labeled constitutions, but also combinations of laws and customs and social practices and conventions and normative beliefs that, importantly, that go into structuring the way public power is deployed and legitimated. 
And also, of course, it's kind of an edge case, but they do exist. So in the UK, we have a so-called unwritten constitution. So the idea that you could have it purely being norms is a bit out there, but not completely unheard of, I guess. Yeah, it's so I will say even the the old what was once called the English Constitution, now you might call it the UK Constitution, has some bits of it that are in, that are in writing. Right. So an unwritten constitution means primarily that it's not a single identifiable written document, but it doesn't mean that it had nothing written in it. That said, even though today, exactly as you say, Toby, we could consider the British Constitution to be an edge case, in contemporary parlance of the use of the word constitution, it wasn't an edge case at all. It was the archetypal case. Hmm. And so... You know, when Americans started saying, no, no, a constitution is a single written document in the 18th century, that was the innovation. And in fact, one of the problems with looking at U.S. constitutionalism narrowly through the lens of it being a single document is that can actually lead you to misleading conclusions about what the constitution really is in the United States, because it turns out it's something a lot closer to a a complicated combination of institutions and practices and beliefs and values than it is to the single piece of paper that you could point to. So this is a genuine question um, in the, like, I'm asking you to fill in the blanks of my knowledge and it just occurs to me now. But the, the way we can think about constitutions as written or perhaps exclusively written documents and to think about the American constitution that way, fill in the gaps of my knowledge. My understanding is from a historical process that's a bit anachronistic, in that that probably wasn't how people were thinking about it at the time. The American Constitution sort of almost started a trend of formalising this. And even today, the US Constitution is a lot less formalised than something like the French or the German, which really go into like the ABCs and the provisos and the exemptions, whereas the American Constitution will just say stuff like free speech and let you figure out what that means. Am I, did, did, do I have that history right, or do you want to complicate or challenge that in any way? Broadly speaking, I agree with you that the US Constitution as written was not intended to cover in every detail every particularity. Um, The great Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, in an opinion in which he gave a broad definition of the Constitution, unlike some other famous opinions where he gave a more narrow definition, the same person, but in his broadest definition, um, in a case called McCulloch against Maryland, said that the Constitution does not speak with, quote, the prolixity of a legal code by which he meant that it does not spell out every last detail of every last obligation or requirement, but left room under its great headings for interpretation, for a rather broad amount of interpretation. And constitutions have varied in terms of the degree of detail or, if you will, prolixity ever since. You That's have, a great word. Mean, it is a great word. It, it is a great <laughs> word. It's, a, it's, still, it's still technically a, an up-to-date word, even though it's not prolix doesn't come up a lot in conversation, but it, it, uh, it could do. Um, but yes, you'll have constitutions today that run to hundreds and hundreds of pages. Some countries have very long constitutions. Some states or in, within federal entities have very long constitutions. And some other constitutions are relatively more compact. Regardless, every constitution, even if it's very detailed, has a body of interpretation associated with it. Mm. And that body of interpretation might be very formalized and produced by a constitutional court or a Supreme Court. Or it might be even broader than that and include customs and practices of parliaments, of executive agencies, of ministries, uh, administrative actors. There are lots of entities that engage in practices that you could call constitutional interpretation, but that build up a body of de facto practice Hmm. that fills out what I would call the actually existing constitution. Right, right. And the other argument, well, to get on to your book... The other feature you really um, zero in on with the American Constitution is you use the word compromise. The Constitution itself does not just... Well, I'll let you go there. What does that word mean to you in the context of the American founding? As background, I would say that all constitutions, whether written, unwritten, or interpreted more broadly involve compromise. Because that was, was going to be a follow-up question. Sorry, ah, go well, ahead. 
Oh, I'm sorry to have reversed <laughs> it, but but all those constitutions, um, yeah. all those constitutions are they purport to be a common blueprint or framework for how people will choose to to live together under conditions of governance. Hmm. And to do that, you need agreement of lots of different people. And except in a utopian fantasy, people don't always agree about how they wish to be governed. So to the extent that they formalize their agreements, they have to come to common conclusions, and that involves compromise. And I think of compromise in two senses. There's compromise in the sense that I really don't wish to do something, but I do it because without agreeing to it, you wouldn't agree to participate with me. Mm. And I think of another kind of compromise, which maybe would be more properly called cooperation or co-creation or collaboration, in which you and I agree on some far end. Let's say we agree that the government ought to treat everybody equally, Mm. but we know we're not going to agree in every detail as to the best way to get there. And so as a consequence, we might reach an agreement as between us that could be called a compromise or a co-creation or a collaboration where we are committed to the same value, but we agree to try it your way first and then to try it my way second or to subordinate my way of doing things to your way of doing things. Hmm. So those are of the same family as classic compromises, but they're not exactly the same. They're not exactly the same thing. The original U.S. Constitution, the Constitution of 1787, was really a compromise of the first sort because northern whites and southern whites agreed to preserve the institution of slavery, notwithstanding that many people actually north and south, many white people north and south, understood already that slavery was morally wrong Hmm. and hoped or fantasized in some cases that it would somehow magically become extinct. They had different, you know, crackpot theories about how that might happen. None had very concrete theories about how to get there. But the southern states made it really clear that without protections and guarantees for slavery, they weren't going to enter into the Constitution. And so the U.S. Constitution protected slavery in at least three concrete ways. It had a guarantee that the international slave trade, which is different than holding slaves Mm -hmm. domestically, and was much more criticized at the time. Even active slaveholders, many of them thought that the international slave trade was particularly inhumane. That was preserved for 20 years. There was the famous or rather infamous three-fifths compromise, which resulted from a strange reality, which is that the southern states, which excluded black people from voting and which also enforced slavery, wanted to count persons of African descent as full people for purposes of representation so that they would have more people representing them in Congress. The northern states said, well, that's preposterous. If you're not going to allow black people to vote, you certainly shouldn't be able to count them for purposes of voting. So black people should count for zero hmm. anyone, and, unless they were free and able to vote. And the compromise they reached was that black people would count for three-fifths of a person. So today we think of it as immoral because of the symbolic quality of saying that anybody is less than a full person. But as it turns out, it was the pro-slavery people who wanted to count blacks and the anti-slavery people who didn't want to count them um, because it was never a question of allowing black people to vote in that, mm. in that debate. And then the third compromise, which is in many ways the most devastating, was the so-called fugitive slave clause. And that was a clause of the Constitution that said that if an enslaved person should escape and flee to a state where slavery did not exist, that that person not only would not become free, but that the, um, that the state to which they fled would cooperate in the process of recapturing them and returning them to a state of slavery. And bad as that sounds, and it sounds very bad, it was even worse than it sounds. Because in 1772, in a a common law case, a court of King's Bench case called Somerset case, Somerset's case, Lord Mansfield had ruled in the case of a Jamaican enslaved person who had been brought to England, that the person was no longer a slave by virtue of being in England, because there was no positive law applicable in England to create slavery, as opposed to in the colonies. And because of that holding, it was conceivable to imagine that an enslaved person who escaped to a place where there was no slavery would just become free. And the Fugitive Slave Clause, among other things, denied that as a legal reality and required, forced the northern states who agreed to it, which is all of them, to acquiesce in the 
continuation of slavery, as it were, in their own courts and pursuant to their own rules, even if they themselves thought that slavery was wrong and should not be sanctioned within their states. So just to close the thought, all of that amounted to a compromise of the bad sort, a kind that was based on the preservation of a practice that not only was immoral, but was understood by many, not all, of the participants in it to be immoral. And yet, without that, there wouldn't have been a constitutional agreement. And so in that sense, the U.S. Constitution was a compromise constitution, the Constitution of 1787. Do you think, I've no idea what the answer is here, do you think that was as good a deal as the northern states were going to get, assuming that they had that, that, that they wanted to walk away from it with some sort of constitutional federal republic? Do you think they could have it's a, it's held a... out and haggled? It's, it's a complete hypothetical, and I don't know the answer, yeah. but do you think they could have haggled for more? It, it is a, it's a classic and really interesting historical counterfactual. So let me answer it in two ways. They said they thought they had done the best they could. So Alexander Hamilton, who, though not the uh, abolitionist that the musical depicts him as being, um, and that's not, not to criticize the musical, which I thought was great, but it's a musical, not a, not a historical analysis, mm-hmm. um, nevertheless was somewhat anti-slavery, although he may himself have owned slaves at some time. There's some debate about that. Um, He said at the New York State Ratifying Convention that this was a, quote, accommodation without which it would not have been possible to reach a constitutional agreement. So, you know, that was the contemporaneous view of someone who had been involved in the negotiations, albeit stated at a context where he was trying to defend the Constitution. Had um, there been a harder push on some of these issues? by Northerners who cared more about it, it's conceivable that they might have made a bit more progress. But it's important to remember that abolitionism, as it came to be known in the first half of the 19th century, was, if it's possible, even more peripheral to the life of white Northerners in the 18th century. You know, I mean, there were uh, Quakers, members of the Society of Friends, who thought that slavery was wrong. But they lacked the clout or capacity to push politicians really anywhere in that direction. And many northern cities had either still had slaves living in them, because slavery had not been abolished in many of the northern states in 1787. It was in the process of abolition, typically, but had not been fully abolished. So in a place like New York City, there were plenty of enslaved people at the time. Um, In a place like even like Philadelphia, there were enslaved people at the time. Um, And There were also substantial economic interests among Northerners uh, in the slave trade and in industries that were closely connected to the slave trade. So there wasn't a constituency at Philadelphia in 1787 pushing very hard for more concessions from the South. Mm. And had they been, they might have been able to get a bit more than they did. What I think is certain is, had they pushed for something in the Constitution that would have let's say, led to the sunsetting of the slave, of slavery altogether, not just of the slave trade, but of slavery altogether, they would not have been able to get the acquiescence of the slave states. Here's another historical hypothetical, and I realize the answer to all of these is just sort of, well, is, do you take that deal? Like, I mean, you probably, let's say, the deal on the table isn't just we can unite, but you still have slavery. It's we've got to accept the three-fifths. We've got to accept the 20-year grandfathering in of the international slave trade. And in some ways, I think the hardest one to swallow, you've got to accept the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and let's just say it's that, or you don't have a union. You can approach this either with the knowledge you have at the time or retrospectively, but do you take that deal? What's the right thing to do there? If you had the view of the immorality of slavery that we have today, or that at least some Americans came to have over the course of the 19th century, there's no way you could take that deal in any kind of moral good conscience. That's, That's my answer, right. But, and I think the the important but is, we have to recognize that our moral view with respect to the immorality of slavery 
was a view that evolved over time. Hmm. And there were, of course, a handful of people, certainly enslaved people, thought that it was fundamentally immoral at all times. And then there were some free people, like the Quakers whom I mentioned, who also thought that not only was slavery wrong, but it was you know, morally inappropriate to compromise with it, that it was a very great moral wrong. So there were people like that. It's not as though I'm saying nobody thought of that at the time. And for sure, enslaved people felt that way. But among, let's call them educated people with political power, like those who were in the Constitutional Convention and those who then participated in the ratification process, slavery was looked upon as, to the extent it was seen as a moral wrong, a moral wrong that perhaps might pass away of its own accord, simply because of enlightenment feelings that eventually people would get over all bad forms of discrimination, although they didn't have a very specific sense of how. Um, or alternatively, they just thought of it in the way that perhaps, you know, some of us think of moral wrongs that exist today, which we think are unfortunate, but we don't think are so morally wrong as to think that in no circumstances could we, you know, go along with a person who participates in them. And we all have things like that. There's a continuum of moral wrongness for us. And so given that was their view, you can see why they made this compromise. Mm. But had they seen it the way we do, it would have been very different. And I will add just one more point to that. Mm. Um, slavery in late 18th century America was still, through the 1780s, was not extremely economically efficient. Mm. Madison, uh, Washington, Jefferson, all of whom were slaveholders with plantations, none of them made real money on their plantations. And there are complicated reasons for that. Um, they didn't alternate crops in the way they ought to have done. Um, tobacco, which had been their cash crop, uh, was no longer growing so well because of that reason in the areas of the South where they were. And so it was conceivable for them to perhaps imagine that slavery might end up being economically inefficient, especially when compared to emergent manufacturing, because they could see the very beginnings of the Industrial Revolution beginning in, in England. But that all changed with a technological innovation of vast importance and terrible consequence, which was the cotton gin, which was a machine or engine for separating out the, the usable from the unusable bits of the cotton. And what it did was it made it economically efficient to grow a different kind of cotton that would grow not just close to the ocean, but everywhere in the, in the South. And that made the slave trade and it made slavery wildly more economically valuable for slaveholders because it enabled them to um, grow this cash cotton crop and coerce people through slavery to grow it um, at a tremendous scale. And once that happened, and that didn't happen until the early 1790s, it's just an accent of history that it happened after the Constitution was drafted and ratified. It changed the economics of slavery, and that in turn changed the politics of slavery. And it was no longer the case that slavery was sort of, uh, you know, an identifiably vestigial old practice that was imagined as likely to fade away. It became the kind of cutting edge for the and a driver for the economy of much of the emerging United States. So the feeling that it would eventually just fade away wasn't... Well, I mean, it, it was willfully naive, but it's perhaps not quite as willfully naive as it seems looking back, because this technology didn't exist yet. Yeah, exactly. It was willfully naive up until the invention of the cotton gin. After that, it was, um, I would call it, self-deceivingly naive. <laughs> I guess the other answer would be, sorry, I like my hypotheticals, is let's say you turn the offer down now. Maybe the people negotiating on the northern side didn't have the moral and ideological prerequisites to see slavery as a great enough evil that you would turn the offer down. But let's say you do. I guess the counter-argument to sort of our modern morality of saying, well, slavery is just this greater evil, would be then what would happen? You'd have sort of two United States emerging, and the north would sort of be what, in a race out west with the other one? What on earth would foreign policy look like with that regime? Would you try and prevent their import of slaves? I've no idea, but you can, you can imagine it going wrong and you ending up with something a bit like the Civil War anyway, right? I don't know. That, that's a hypothetical that is certainly possible to imagine. I mean, the way to think about it is this. 
in the actual historical period of the first half of the 19th century in the U.S., as um, cotton growing expanded westward in the southern part of the United States to newly acquired territory, it was economically efficient with the use of slaves to grow cotton as a cash crop. But in those places where cotton was being grown, you were not growing um, you were not growing food to feed you, nor were you growing livestock. That stuff ended up being cultivated and raised further north in the um, current uh, near Midwest, what was called at the time the Old Northwest, and which happened to correspond to the places where Lincoln was raised, uh, Western Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois. And what happened is that the produce and livestock raised there was then brought down river, down the Mississippi River, which just coincidentally happens to you know flow because of gravity south on these flatboats that required no power other than the power of the current and sold to the south. So the expansion westward in both the southern part of the United States and in the middle part of the United States was driven by this expansion of the cotton crop and the expansion of slavery. And that was a unified economy in which all parts of the country were participating. Had there not been a single nation then, that would still have been possible. You know, tariffs might have stood in the way, internal tariffs might have stood in the way of that kind of trade and made the advancement pursue, perceive, uh, proceed more slowly, but almost certainly it would have proceeded. And then that also leads to the question of, you know, American expansion across the continent, eventually to California. And that, too, is a process that was sped up by the fact that the United States was a single unified nation. It meant that the conquest or, if you prefer to genocide, of Native Americans was more efficient because there were U.S. Army troops to stand behind it. It meant that the Mexican-American War, in which the U.S., participated in a pretty aggressive war against Mexico that took large parts of uh, what had been Mexico for the United States would also have been much harder to, to pull off again because you wouldn't have had a unified nation. There are a range of ways that you could imagine that expansion across the West would have been slower. And that means that the decimation or destruction of Native American cultures might also have happened more slowly or in a different pattern the way, say, uh, it happened in, in Canada, where the, pro the process was a different one. So you could imagine the trajectory being a little bit different. You'd have to be a pretty strong determinist to say, you know, white, mostly English speaking people of European descent were destined to conquer the entirety of the continent. And that was going to happen whether they were unified into a single country or not. And that's not something you could ascribe to the moral reasoning of the people at the time. Like, even if we inject them with modern morality they still couldn't possibly have foreseen all of that. Um, well, yes and, yes and no. I mean, to, to be, they were very ambitious. Hmm. And the idea of westward expansion was clearly in their minds and in their practices. I mean, George Washington, I mentioned he never made much money from his plantation, but he did make substantial money, all of it in land speculation. Hmm. And the structure was to go west, take land, settle it, uh, and as it were, colonize it. And then it would go up in value. And so they knew that they could do that in the Ohio Valley, for example, the Ohio River Valley. And they aspired to do it as far as they could do. Hmm. And when, you know, as President Thomas Jefferson sent the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, out west across the continent, the stated objective was to see how far they could go and what routes they could find, especially water routes, to get them to the Pacific again, with the intent of eventual expansion and, and conquest. And that's already in the early 19th century. So they, they knew the direction they were going. They just couldn't have aspired realistically in the 1780s to actually conquering the whole continent. But once Napoleon had sold a right of expansion, you know, in the early, again, in the early 19th century to the United States, it was possible to imagine that kind of broad continental expansion happening. It took a long time for it to happen, although in historic terms, not all that long, but it took, a fair, it took generations for it to happen. But yeah, the aspiration I think they could have had, and many actually did have it. None of this is super edifying for the American founders, is it? Like, we have to cut this deal with people who are 
doing something we regard as very immoral, perhaps not quite as immoral as contemporary people would, but still. Um, but we have to cut it for the noble reason of, well, not quite the liberty and justice for all thing, although that's there, but because we have to conquer a continent and keep on expanding westwards and making money and too bad for whoever happens to be there. None of this... It's hard to put a positive topspin on that thought process. Yes. I mean, I think these were, these were humans. They were self-interested in many ways. Now, to an audience that is interested in political philosophy, it's important to point out that they had political philosophical justifications, nevertheless. Right? One was, and this was the crucial idea driving the Constitutional Convention, the, the states had declared independence from Britain, had survived the Revolutionary War, sticking together simply because they had no other choice. You know, that line, we must all hang together, or assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Mm. And then with the war completed, there was a real worry. Madison and others were very concerned that there was insufficient common interest to hold them together. And here's the punchline where the political philosophy comes in. They feared that if they didn't hold together as a single country, that their experiment in Republican self-government would fail. Mm. And so, you know, if you were in Philadelphia in 1787 and you asked Madison and others, you know, why is it so important to stay together? They didn't just say, well, to expand and to do well. I mean, they had those interests for sure, and they were willing to sometimes articulate them. But their first answer would have been, we're engaged in an epochal experiment in whether human beings can live together in federation of republics. Hmm. And they knew that the history of republics wasn't great. And the history of federal republics was especially not very uh, promising. And they wanted to achieve the historic transformative victory of winning, of winning the fight for republicanism and in their minds against monarchism. Hmm. Now, Hamilton and perhaps a few other of the framers, like a man called James Wilson, and on his best day or his worst days, George Washington, did sort of think that monarchy was the only way, mm. and they wanted the president of the United States to be a kind of elected monarch. Mm. But that was not something they said very explicitly, because after all, a revolution had just been fought against monarchy. Um, I mean, it was really against parliamentary, parliamentary sovereignty and supremacy, but they had at some point started saying that it was a revolution against monarchy. And so they were trying to justify, in political theoretical terms, the normative validity of that project. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. And the truth is, if all they had done was contribute to the building of you know, an empire, an American empire, they wouldn't be venerated in the way that they are. The veneration comes from the fact that they had a very sophisticated, if you will, political spin, political theoretical spin, namely, let's prove that you can have what became the United States. Let's prove you can have Brazil. Let's prove you can have India. You know, large federal democracies functioning under Republican conditions. What do you make of the argument, um, probably best embodied by someone like Orlando Patterson, that we tend to see those two sides that we've just covered, the um, complicity with slavery and the creation of this new freedom-founded systems governments as kind of a contradiction, whereas he would argue that it's kind of two sides of the same coin, that the veneration of liberty by people like um, Jefferson and Washington who held slaves was partly a result of them being so entrenched in that system. And I guess in, in, a, in a sentence, the people who were most alive to the possibilities of freedom as a social value are, in fact, the people who are in the business of denying it to others. And to, would, would you go the, this is a just a ugly and unfortunate contradiction, or that there might be ways that you could um, link those two together socio-historically? Well, they can certainly be linked. And I should say, I'm, you know, second to, my, to none in my admiration for Orlando Patterson and personally and, and for his work. Mm. But I would put it maybe just a slightly little bit differently. And I'm not sure what I'm going to say is incompatible with Orlando's own views. So first, I would say a point that he's also made. The ancient republics, Greek and Roman, on whom the framers imagined they were basing their, their models, were slave republics. 
So there was certainly no, they didn't think there was any inherent contradiction between enslavement and republicanism. They, they, thought, they thought of it as perfectly compatible. So that's the first point. Um, with respect to the second point, which is, is it precisely the act of enslaving others that draws one to value one's own liberty? I mean, there's a lot to it. And certainly rhetorically, the, um, the move of American revolutionists was to say, we don't want to be slaves. And we would be in a status as though we were slaves if we continue to be subordinated to parliament without representation in parliament. There's, um, did, they, there's a... did they know that? They knew that was hopelessly over. I think they knew that was hopelessly overstated as a formal argument, but there's no question that they made it. And that's in support of Orlando's view. But, and here's the but, I also think there are many practical instances of what can only be described as, you know, cognitive incoherence or contradiction. I'll give you an example. Uh, James Madison in the 1780s, so this is before the Constitution, served in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And he brought with him to Philadelphia as his manservant, an enslaved man called Billy, who had been given to him by his uh, grandmother as a, as a gift when he was a small child. And at the end of his time in Philadelphia, there were, there were term limits. He was returning to Virginia. He wrote a letter to his father. And he was dependent entirely on his father for money. And cash was short at that time in the United States. There was a serious cash crunch. And he wrote back, look, and I'm paraphrasing here, I can't bring Billy back to the plantation because he's been living with me in Philadelphia for the last three years where there are free blacks. So his presence on the plantation would not work because he's going to taint the minds of the rest of our slaves. So I can't bring Billy home. Then he says, I could sell him to the Deep South or into the Caribbean, for which he would have gotten plenty of value for him. But he says, I, I, it would be monstrous to punish Billy for seeking that liberty, which is the right of all humans, and which we sought in the revolution. So here he is, Madison, a slaveholder, writing to his father, another slaveholder, explaining that it would be wrong to sell Billy to another slaveholder because just for wanting to be free, which is a human right, he was saying, which is the same human right that we possess. Mm. And then he concludes this letter by saying, so I've decided instead to sell Belly into indentured servitude. I'll get some money for him and he'll become free after six or seven years of servitude. I mean, this is contradiction of the deepest human type, mm. right? He's acknowledging that Billy has fundamental right to want to be free and to be free. He's saying that it would be a monstrous to sell him into slavery, and yet he still needs the money. And so he's going to sell him into this quasi-slavery, quasi-free status um, to his own profit. And he's doing all this in justification to a letter to his father whom he needs money from. So I, I think this does capture something of just the messy contradiction that was also present. Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, if I give my own view, I think you can have both sides of it. Um, I think we... We, I don't know what I'm using that, we as intellectuals and people who try to rationalise and categorise things can sometimes trip over the fact a bit that people can believe contradictory things. And they can believe contradictory things like quite easily and effortlessly at times. And then sometimes you become aware of them, sometimes you struggle with them, sometimes you push them back under. But people believe mutually exclusive stuff all the time. I... I don't know, here's my view. I can see a world in which there's kind of an emotional truth and a rational one. The emotional truth is George Washington, as he's thinking about what the king wants to do to him, is looking at his slaves and thinking, I do not want to be that. And it's just like an emotional thing. I do not want to be that. And that is what this man is trying to make me. And out of that emotion born of a sort of socio-economic reality proceeds multiple and manifest contradictions, but you can hang on to the side of saying there's logical and legal and whatever contradictions, while sort of saying living near and around slaves, much less owning them, must have affected how these people saw and felt in their heads about being subject to the crown or something like that. I don't know. Did that make any sense? Yes, I think so. I, I, and I think I, insofar as I understood it, I think I agreed with it. I mean, I think that one can have 
contradictory ideas in one's head. And I agree entirely that if you're disposed to make a podcast about political philosophy or listen to one mm. or participate in one, you're probably the kind of person who thinks that we are pretty good at or aspire to rationalize our beliefs so that they make sense. Mm. Since after all, what is political philosophy? But the, in my view, noble effort, but sometimes self-deceiving at the same time, to attempt to say that our beliefs make coherent sense of our social practices, our political practices. So yes, we like we, we have a tendency to think of it that way, and it's not always true. There are contradictions. That said, you can reason with people, even when they're in the grips of contradictions. And in the case of historical figures, you can read what they've written and what they said to each other, and you can try to reconstruct the processes that thoughtful people did engage in. And in the case of the U.S. Constitution, at least some of the people who spoke and thought about these questions did give pretty detailed explanations that fit very well into the frame of political philosophy, hmm. right? I mean, Jefferson, Madison, you know, Wilson, the, Hamilton, these people were political philosophers among their other, you know, jobs, including practical politicians and plantation owners and what have you. But they were actually practicing political philosophers. Same is true of Lincoln, who is the focus really of my book. I mean, we've spoken mostly about oh, yeah, the setup but, part, yeah. part of the book. No, that's, that's fine. We've spoken mostly about the setup part of the book. But ultimately, my book is about this book is really about the moments of rupture in which this edifice is broken in the course of the Civil War. You know, Lincoln goes into the war with a detailed political philosophical picture of why slavery should be upheld, even though it's morally wrongful. And over the course of the war, he changes his mind and he comes to realize that slavery has to be abolished. And he has a problem on his hands, which is that he thinks he's sworn an oath to support the Constitution, and he understands the Constitution not to enable him to do this. So he finds his way slowly, painfully, in a serpentine reasoning process that I document in the book to the position that says, oh, I am justified in doing this. And then he does it without, a, without the authority of any other actor, without the direct authority of Congress, and really to a great degree on his own judgment. And it's an act of rupture and of breaking of the Constitution that is, in fact, morally justified. And a lot of the book is my attempt to make sense of the relationship between his political, this is to connect to your question, his own political philosophical ideas as he tries to rationalize this, and which are changing very rapidly, and his own practical judgment that this is the thing that must be done. Yeah, and it is a, it is a fascinating thing about this period is how self-consciously philosophical these guys were, which perhaps isn't so much true of some modern politicians we could name. Here's a question I had in your book, um, moving forward to Lincoln now, is we see the Civil War, well, the, 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 the sort of overall view is about slavery, but at the time, the story is that it was a question of secession. The, th the South thought, or were, were asserting, shall we say, their right to secede, and Lincoln um, argued that they did not have that right to secede. Um, here's, here's my question, though. You go into, and I didn't know this, that, that almost just before he came into office, Lincoln's predecessor essentially wrote something on the advice of his attorney general saying, um, well, technically, like, the South shouldn't really be seceding, but the president is not authorised by Congress to really do anything about it, should it happen. We... So here's my question, right? If you could summarise that and why he thought it. But also, what, did, what was the general's view at the time? Because I guess looking back now anachronistically, we sort of think, well, of course they didn't have the right to secede. But was that the prevailing sentiment when this happened? The analysis of this question by James Buchanan, Lincoln's immediate predecessor and his attorney general, um, said the following. And again, this will be of interest to political philosophers. They said, well, we do not believe that our Constitution as written justifies secession. But if secession nevertheless occurs, which by then it was in the process of occurring, we believe that under our constitution, the federal government, not just the president, but the whole federal government has no power to go to war to coerce the 
seceding states to return. And the core of the reason, apart from the constitutional text, was that they believed that the constitution was based on the principle of consent of the governed. And that consent had been given by the states in ratifying conventions when they joined the union. And it was removed by secession conventions when they left the union. And even if that act was a revolutionary act, said Buchanan, once a revolution had been accomplished, the constitution didn't contemplate coercing people who had chosen to secede out of their revolutionary act and back into the union. And we're accustomed, because we see the history through the lens of the winners, to accepting Lincoln's later interpretation, according to which this act of secession was not revolution, but rebellion, and according to which his authority as commander in chief enabled him and his obligation to execute the laws enabled him to force these states back into the union. And that was a radical, radical view for him to take at the time. And he took it, even though it violated the then conventional understanding of what the president's constitutional powers were. And Lincoln developed his own original political theory to justify this, which is also really fascinating, again, for, for your listeners. And it's I talk about it some length in the book. And ultimately, I would say Lincoln hit on a version of constitutional theory derivative of Hobbes, even though it's pretty clear that Lincoln didn't read Hobbes, he hit upon uh, Hobbes's view. And the view was this. Lincoln said that if it were the case that there was no authority in the majority to coerce the minority to remain governed, then at all moments, the minority would have the capacity to exact concessions from the majority by threatening to walk away. And of course, that is de facto true in any constitutional union. If a minority threatens to walk away, it can extract those concessions against the backdrop threat that it will go to war uh, and be defeated. And what Lincoln said is that it must be morally justifiable for the majority to use coercion against the minority so that the matter of the union will be finally settled. Hmm. And that was a kind of new innovation in constitutional political theory within the U.S. when he offered that interpretation. You can see how your listeners will be able to see how it resonates with Hobbes. The notion is sort of that once you're in a rationally justifiable government, the government is authorized and coercing you to remain in. And then we can say that you've consented because it's rational for you to have consented to that. Um, Again, Lincoln hit on this because people were actually seceding from him and he was going to coerce them back in, not by reading Hobbes. But the idea is there in Hobbes. And note that it's pretty different from what you would imagine from Locke. Hmm. And Lockean political theory was really the dominant view at the time of the Constitution being enacted. In other words, that there's a sort of um, civil society that preserves outside of government and there is a right to disassociate yourself yeah, with it. Yeah, and, it and... Consent, consent, consent means consent. Exactly. If you've, if, you know, you've joined by choice and voluntary consent into this government, and that you therefore have some inherent right, inalienable right indeed, to withdraw from it if you no longer think it serves your interests. That was the theory of the, of the Declaration of Independence. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was hard for Lincoln to move beyond it, but he did. Now, with the proviso, obviously, that there was no opinion polls back then and then as now not everyone was reading their Locke or Hobbes was that do you think the Lockean view if we can call it that was that what sort of the proverbial man on the street would have was Lincoln the innovator in this space or was it something that was disputed I think Lincoln really was the substantial innovator on this point Um, many people on the street on both north and south thought that it was reasonable for someone, you know, for in the same way that the um, in the same way that the U.S. had purported to withdraw through the Declaration of Independence from England for, or from the United Kingdom. Similarly, the southern states should be able to secede. I think that was a more intuitive view to a lot of people. Because that gives a very different read and a very different valence to the, I mean, the whole trajectory of American history up until that point, where you've got like free state being added, slave state being added. And I mean, you do have this sort of de facto race out west, but that if everyone was sort of walking around figuring that they can and they can and they have the right to opt out at any time, that that does sort of um, 
that does cast the whole thing in a bit of a different light. That the whole thing was always a lot more fragile than yeah. I mean, we Aaron, think looking Aaron, back. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Aaron Burr had tried to um, get some parts, some states, or potentially just territories to join a new confederacy that he was trying to produce. And nobody thought that as a matter of political theory, that was preposterous. In fact, Jefferson sort of thought that if Burr could get away with it, well, that was all you could do. You know, that was reality. If states did that, they did that. Um, similarly, when, for example, uh, white settlers in Texas created the Republic of Texas, they did that by what purported to be a voluntary revolutionary act. And Lincoln, when he was in Congress, said, well, any group of people who revolutionizes has the right to revolutionize over every ter any territory where they hold sway. And if they hold sway and make a revolution, they can do so. That was really, it was pretty much common parlance for Americans of the first half of the 19th century. So here's a, here's a final point to maybe close, and I don't think we're going to cover the entire argument of your book, but one contrast that you draw that I thought was really interesting was um, the new constitution that Lincoln made being different in many functional respects um, in terms of, for instance, it not having this fundamental compromise with slavery, but also you described it as becoming seen as a moral document in a way that the previous constitution wasn't, that Lincoln's defense of the compromise constitution, as you call it, was always in much more functionalist, rational, non-emotional terms, and the new constitution that came out of it, well, I'm just sort of describing the argument, perhaps I should let you go, but but that changed from functional to moral, if I'm summarising it right. Could you discuss that a little? Absolutely, and I think you stated it very well. In In brief, I don't think anyone, Lincoln included, could really defend the Constitution of 1787 on moral terms. The most they could say was that there was a moral duty to keep promises and that signing the Constitution or taking an oath to support the Constitution was a species of a promise and therefore that one should keep one's promises. But that's very different than saying that there's a substantive moral good that you're committed to upholding. Hmm. Once slavery was taken out of the compromise by Lincoln's act of emancipation, he began to be able to say that there was a new birth of freedom. This is the Gettysburg Address formulation, that there was therefore moral grounds for supporting this new union that would emerge. So that this government, you know, of the people, by the people, for the people, again, the political theoretical justification for why republicanism was a value, should not perish from the earth, right? Lincoln is able to make the moral argument in favor of the union once slavery is taken out of the equation. And that makes his language more expressly moral. And then when the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are adopted, abolishing slavery, establishing equal protection of the laws, which it's important to note did not exist in the original constitution of 1787, there was no equal protection clause in that constitution, um, and enfranchising African-Americans, then it became possible to imagine the U.S. Constitution as a moral document, a kind of higher law. And that became crucial to subsequent constitutional thinking, not only in the U.S., but elsewhere. So today, when we speak of a constitution in general, we usually imagine that that constitution has some meaningful moral dimension to it. And I argue that that is really an innovation of this transformation that Lincoln accomplished and a really important feature of that transformation and that we almost don't notice it today because we're so accustomed to thinking of constitutions in moral terms. But they, they were not originally thought of in that way, and the U.S. Constitution in particular was not thought of as similarly moral in the, in the nature of its normative claim. And I think that is ultimately Lincoln's greatest legacy, that he shaped a notion of constitutions and of the U.S. Constitution where we can say that we're aspiring to equality and liberty, and even if we don't accomplish those things, we hold ourselves accountable by virtue of the standards that we say are embedded in our constitution. And by doing so, we try to live, to live up as best we can to those ideals. Which isn't totally different to, I guess, what you could call the mainstream political narrative of the constitution, both understood as a text and a set of practices and a set of, I guess, even aspirations. Um, it's just that the mainstream one would 
stretch it all the way back to the founding, whereas you're putting the um, origin point. So I'm just thinking about something like Biden's yeah, inauguration. Think... He very much sure. has that. As sort of, we have these ideals, we have these values and goals as Americans. We'd never fully live up to them, but we're always working towards them. But he'd put that at the founding, I think. Not a, yeah, um... and, and I understand that, you know, he's a politician, he's trying to bring people together, but I actually think that Americans are mature enough intellectually and the country is mature enough as a matter of, um, you know, as a matter of its political history to actually tell the truth. Hmm. And that truth entails acknowledging that the 1787 Constitution was not, you know, aspirationally inclusive, because if it were, it would not have included this kind of active protection of slavery and slavery institutions. And so when we have, as we have in the United States today, a serious debate about how we should think about the relationship between race, racism, our constitution, and our identity, I think we do best when we tell the truth. And that truth to me is pretty clearly that the 1787 constitution was a constitution that had slavery baked in. And to that extent was a compromise with immorality and with slavery, but that we broke that constitution and replaced it with something better. And so in so doing, we can see the capacities that we have for growth and development. And that too, to my mind, has inspirational moral weight, more so than if we, if you'll pardon the word, just whitewash the particularities of our history and pretend that the framers were, um, were somehow pure when they manifestly manifestly were not. So I think we can help work our way through those debates that we're having now by kind of a course of historical honesty. And that actually gives us better basis for a political theoretical picture of what the constitution is for and what it is to live together as people. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. And that makes so much sense. I guess it partly depends on like, who you are as a person, like, how psychologically disposed you are to different narratives. I think also just your sort of underlying political ideology, by which I don't just mean your sort of self-conscious commitments, I mean the sort of sometimes conscious, sometimes subconscious impulses and framing devices we bring to the world. I think conservatives tend to like the idea of a fixed order, um, some extra human origin to our affairs, some point from which we perhaps have fallen, but to which we can return. Um, I think liberals like the idea of progress. That can either be a naive, whiggish progress or just sort of journey metaphor, things can improve and grow and develop, and justice isn't an ideal from which we've fallen, but the light at the top of the staircase or something. I just, I, I think it's not just, a, I, I, I'll leave, I'll, I'll, I'm going on a little, um, but I think which narrative you prefer isn't just which is true, it's people are psychologically and ideologically predisposed to either seek fixed historical starting points or to be more open to the idea of ongoing change and maturation and development. I don't know. I'll, that's Toby's I, I commentary. Mean, I see it maybe just a slight, as the slightest little bit differently. I think that we're looking for narratives, and it may be that our preference for certain narratives is shaped by our political predilections. But I also think that in building narratives, we are accountable to and responsible to historical truth hmm. to the extent we can seek it out. I'm not claiming that, you know, history is always determinative or that history is always can be determined as having objective content. There's, of course, a great deal of interpretation. But if one looks at the presence of slavery in the American Republic from the framing until, you know, January 1st of 1863, that is a historical fact. It's a historical fact that actual human beings were enslaved. And that needs to be that needs to be taken seriously and acknowledged. And that's the truth that I that I have in mind. Thanks so much for coming on. Super appreciate your time today. Um, anywhere you want to direct listeners, Twitter, website, where they should get the book? Sure. Um, the book, again, is The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery and the Refounding of America. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman, and you can get the book uh, at your local bookshop or on Amazon, as is your will. Thank you.